From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, July 26th. I'm Aaron Schachter. In London on the eve of the Olympics, a handful of athletes get doping bans. We learn some tricks of the trade. You take some blood out of your system, you store it, you rebuild back up the blood cells, and then just before the competition, you reinfuse that stored blood. Plus, the widow of an Israeli murdered at the 1972 Games wants a moment of silence. In Montreal, they told us that there are 21 Arab delegations and they're going to walk out. And I said, let them walk out, because if they don't understand the idea of the Olympics, then they have no reason to be there. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss Market Warriors Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. The Olympic opening ceremony begins less than 24 hours from now. The world's Alex Galifant is in London covering the Games for us. Alex, we'll have a report from you in a few minutes. But tell us now, what is the mood there at this point? Is London ready? You know, I I think everyone's pretty excited, finally. You know, you can't move around the streets of London without seeing volunteers in in their purple polo shirts with London 2012 written on them. But there was a small, as we say over here, spanner thrown into the works by Mitt Romney. He's over here as part of a trip to burnish his foreign policy credentials. But in an interview with NBC, he called the British preparations for the Games disconcerting. And the response from the Brits? Well, Prime Minister David Cameron is having none of it. He suggested that putting on the Games in a, in a big city like London might be harder and more complicated than if they were in, quote, the middle of nowhere. Sounds like he was taking a dig at Salt Lake City. That, you, you be the judge of that. And Cameron, is he looking forward to the Games? Uh, yes, he's lucky. The, the Prime Minister's residence, 10 Downing Street, is right next to where the beach volleyball is going to be played. Unfortunately, they've just built a temporary arena for the Games in front of his windows, so he's not going to get much of a view. No. It, yeah, Cameron says there's no line of sight anymore. Poor David. Poor David. Thanks, Alex, and we look forward to your report later in the show. Thanks, Aaron. The Summer Olympics are already over for some athletes. Yesterday, nine track and field athletes were sent home after failing doping tests, and the list is growing. Today, a Greek high jump champion, two Turkish weightlifters, and a Hungarian discus thrower. They were all kicked out of the London Games for using banned substances. BBC Science correspondent Matt McGraw has been following the story. This is part of uh, what the uh, authorities would believe would be, I suppose, getting rid of the deadwood before the event. I mean, they're starting to undergo a large number of tests. I mean, London is promising to do 5,000 urine and 1,000 blood tests. For about a week now, the testing has been in the hands of the International Olympic Committee. They have been going about doing some tests, and some of these failures are a result of that. Yeah, and this is the first year for uh, what's being called a biological passport scheme. What, what is that? 
The idea is that over a long period of time, you take samples regularly from athletes, from cyclists, blood and urine, and then you're able to monitor them against themselves, essentially. So if there's a change in your blood parameters, suddenly you've got more, say, young red blood cells in your system. The authorities are able to say, look, we don't know what you're up to, but we know you're up to something and therefore we're going to ban you. The difficulty for it, of course, is that uh, it's only been in cycling. It's only been in a limited way in athletics. And there have been very few prosecutions taken under the passport because it is an interpretative science. It's down to the scientists to say, I think you're doing something. I'm not quite sure what it is, but we think from the indicators that you're doing something. And is the point to, to track down some kind of newfangled drug that everyone's using these days? What, what are they looking for? The laboratory that's been set up here in London is is possibly the most advanced that's ever been at an Olympic Games. I mean, they're spending enough money on it. GlaxoSmithKline are spending somewhere in the region of $30 million on it. So they believe that they can track pretty much anything. They, I wouldn't say they're getting a little bit big-headed. And I think they are actually getting a little bit big-headed. They're saying that there's pretty much no substance out there at the moment that they can't test for. The things that have given them the biggest problems, though, have been blood doping. Traditional, old-fashioned, old-school blood doping. You take some blood out of your system, you store it, you you rebuild back up the blood cells and then just before the competition you reinfuse that stored blood no test exists for that at the moment but a lot of the time the offenses are are very old school this uh, greek high jumper uh, who uh, failed the test in london the latest one he was he's been done i believe for stanozolol and that was the drug an old fashioned steroid that uh, ben johnson went down mm. for in the games in seoul you know in 1988 so um, there are a lot of old school medications still around it appears Matt, Olympic athletes aren't weekend warriors who who take drugs to make them special. They're already highly trained sports machines. Now, you've spoken with uh, a doctor who says essentially that drugs are just another tool in an elite athlete's toolbox. Is there a movement afoot to just legalize them? There are some people who believe that, look, if you have athletes who are competing and they're using modification, that should be allowed. That's part of what happens in society. We shouldn't take a dim view of it when it comes to sport. We have in this Games, for instance, we have the technological uh, athlete, uh, Oscar Pistorius, who was running with the two carbon blades for his feet. You know, this wouldn't have happened 20 or 30 years ago. You also Um, have people, the cyclists, you know, one bike is, is better than the other. One bike is more scientific. Oh, absolutely. Is that technological doping? Is it financial doping in the sense of, you know, you have more money, more resources to throw at things? Uh, There are some who make that argument. The question going forward for the World Anti-Doping Agency, the people who make the rules in this area is, you know, do we just continue with a a full ban on everything or do we say that some things are not as dangerous and not as performance enhancing as we we need? Their final resort really is that if things are deemed as dangerous for an athlete's health, they can ban them on that grounds. But they also have this idea of protecting the integrity of sport. And this comes up every time there's Olympics, just about every time there's a Tour de France and so on. But there are thousands of athletes participating in these games, and and we all tend to focus each time they come around on the cheats. Is that unfair? It's unfair to brand everybody and to think about the games more so in terms of they're all cheats, because they're certainly not. But there are some elements of people out there who will go to extreme lengths to organize and and dope it upsets people because it's you know people want to believe what they see out there and um, and they should and that's what the whole i suppose anti-doping effort is all about matt mcgraw thank you so much my pleasure doping dramas are actually nothing new to the olympic games the practice is believed to have been at its peak during the 1970s and 80s And back then, testing for drugs was less reliable. As world records tumbled, suspicions about top athletes were rampant, and a cloud remains over many of the performances of that period. David Moorcroft is a former middle and long-distance runner from Britain. In 1982, he broke the world 5,000 meters record. 
David, it, it seems like the 1970s and 80s really kicked things off for doping. What was it like for you being an athlete during this time, and did you know how rampant doping was? I became a, uh, an international athlete in the early 1970s. My first Olympic Games was 1976, and it was a bit of a, an eye-opener for me. Uh, my first uh, international match was Great Britain versus East Germany, and it was pretty obvious there was something uh, <laughs> really? unusual happening. Um, but it wasn't just a problem of the of the Eastern Bloc. It was prevalent in the West, uh, but sadly, many of the people who were successful weren't caught and will never know. Having said that, I, I still like to believe that the vast majority of athletes over many, many years are clean and do it for all the right reasons. It must be incredibly frustrating to know that you were beaten by someone who cheated. Any number of athletes who who got the silver medal only to find years, decades later, that they were actually in first place. In many cases, it's too late to turn the clock back, but it's because it's a clock that's you know that's effectively you need to turn forty years. But even in you know more recent years, um, athletes that um, win gold medals at the Olympics and then subsequently are banned. Um, it kind of makes it difficult for the person who finished second or third or fourth or fifth to really feel like they've had their moment of glory standing on top of the rostrum. Well, in this day and age, too, you miss out, um, if I may be a bit crude, you miss out on the shoe deals and the, the cereal boxes and all that sort of thing. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, you know, victory now is extremely lucrative, but I think that's one of the problems is that people are so desperate to win, they'll win at all costs. As a parent, you'd always want your children to take part in a sport where you felt that was clean mm-hmm. and one that, that you'd wish your children to be involved with. And I think these games will be amongst the cleanest ever. And maybe sport is much more now a contest between ta- natural talent and determination rather than chemical enhancement. You were a world record holder for the 5,000 meters. Did you ever worry that people looked at you and said, oh, yeah, we know how he did that? One of the sad things in athletics is that the only people who really know whether they're cheated or not are the athletes themselves. And 99 times out of 100, I was confident that the people who beat me beat me because they were better than me on the day. And inevitably people, you know, when you perform well, they think, I wonder if he did, I wonder if he didn't. Right. I know the truth. I'm, you know, I was really comfortable and, and absolutely committed um, to being uh, a natural athlete. And I'm delighted that I competed on that basis. David Moorcroft, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. David Moorcroft is a former world record holder in the 5,000 meters. There were renewed calls today for an official remembrance of what happened at the 1972 Olympic Games in Munich. That September, Palestinian militants stormed the Israeli quarters at the Olympic Village. They killed one Israeli and took 10 more hostage. A rescue attempt went wrong, and all the Israeli hostages, athletes, and coaches were killed. Relatives of the dead are lobbying for a minute of silence to be included in tomorrow's opening gala. The world's Alex Galifant reports from London. Andre Spitzer was Israel's fencing coach in Munich. He was 29 when he arrived at the Games. He was so excited. His wife, Anki, says Andre's happiness wasn't only about sport. Meeting people from different countries, to be able to intermingle, that was his dream, and that uh, I remember very, very vividly from that time. When Andre and his fellow Israelis were taken hostage, Anki watched on television with the rest of the world. At one point, Andre was brought to a window, stripped to his underwear, 
you could see that his hands were tied behind his back. And the most humiliating thing for him was, in my opinion, that he did not wear his glasses and he, and he, he could not see without his glasses. Since the murder of her husband, Anki Spitzer has spent 40 years in search of a single minute. But at every Olympic Games since 1972, Olympic authorities have rejected her call for an official moment of silence. In Montreal, they told us that there are 21 Arab delegations and they're uh, going to walk out. And I said, let them walk out, because if they don't understand the idea of the Olympics, then they have no reason to be there. Then we were told that we are bringing politics into the Olympics. That was in Barcelona Games in 92. This year in London, she's making the case again. And Spitzer's message has been bolstered by an online petition organized by a Jewish group in New York. More than 100,000 people have signed it. Both President Obama and Mitt Romney have expressed support. But the International Olympic Committee says the opening ceremony is not an appropriate forum for memorializing the victims. And it says the Olympic community has already remembered the events of 1972 many times. Not enough, says Alan Aziz of Britain's Zionist Federation. They may have done some things where three or four people have done something within a small room, but that's not the same thing at all. And they really should have the guts to take the decision to do something properly in public and in the appropriate forum. The IOC says there will be a major memorial event during these Olympic Games on August 6th. Prime Minister David Cameron plans to attend, along with the IOC head Jacques Rogge. But it won't be at an Olympic venue, and it won't be seen by the one billion people expected to tune in for the opening ceremony. All we're saying is that this happened during the Olympic Games, and it is wholly appropriate that a moment, a minute's silence takes place, and yes, within the Olympic Games. Aziz says he understands the IOC's concern about any perceived politicization of the Games. He says it's not a Jewish issue. Other Olympic tragedies are equally worthy of remembrance. The victims of the Atlanta bombing in 1996, for instance. If they were to announce that they would like to hold a minute silence for any victims who happened to die at any of the Olympic Games, I would personally be completely happy with that. It's unlikely that the Olympic movement would want to devote a segment of its big party to its most horrific moments. And some observers say that might be the real sticking point. The Olympic Games are a very expensive celebration. There's a lot, and a lot of money, riding on people having a good time. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant in London. Coming up later in the show, the missing violins of Louis XIV on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. This week in Washington, the likes of Elton John and Bill Gates are mingling with AIDS activists and scientists from around the world at the 19th International AIDS Conference. The mood has been upbeat. Many say there's a sense of progress in the fight against HIV. But on the other side of the world, about a 1,000 sex workers are holding a parallel AIDS conference in protest. U.S. law restricts sex workers from entering the country, and those who've gathered in the Indian city of Kolkata say they want an end to that discrimination. Most AIDS experts believe including sex workers in discussions of HIV prevention is essential if the epidemic is to be stemmed. The BBC's Rahul Tandon is in Kolkata. 
Rahul, tell us where you are right now. I'm in Sonagachi, the red light district of Kolkata. There's around 8,000 sex workers who live and earn their money here. I'm just walking through the streets at the moment. I can see some of them clad in their saris in front of me. You can probably hear some of the cars that are bringing clients coming down the road as we speak. And many of the women from here in the daytime have been at the sex workers conference where they've been joined by sex workers from 42 countries across the globe because the simple fact is they're supposed to be in Washington, D.C. for the big AIDS conference there. But because of the, their profession, because they're sex workers, they found it difficult to get visas to get into the state. So they said, if you're not going to welcome us, we're going to have our own conference somewhere where we are welcomed, and it's happening here in Kolkata. Now, Rahul, as you say, there's a lot of anger among the delegates at the United States, uh, as I understand it. You heard from one transgender rights activist, Lakshmi Narayan Tripathi. Let's hear what she had to say. The disappointing issue for me is that when the U.S. claims it's one of the biggest powers, democracies, so where you're not treating people with dignity. You shouldn't be bothered about what the profession of the person is. Now, now that law we were talking about that restricts prostitutes from entering the country was drawn up in part to prevent the trafficking of sex slaves. Uh, I, I mean, a, a noble beginning, at least, no? Obviously, obviously. And I, and I think, you know, everybody who is here at this conference, the sex workers, are, are, are against trafficking. But I think one of the points that has struck me the most about this is, is what they say is, look, you know, you have two types of sex workers. You have those who are trafficked and those who are forced into it which sex workers here, and they're from across the world, claim are a minority. And then you have the other sex workers, the ones that are here at the conference, who say, look, this is a choice that we made. I mean, I've spoken to sex workers from Africa, from Europe, from India, from across Southeast Asia, and they say it is a job for them. It is a profession. It is an industry. They say just as people go to work in any other form of life, sex for them is their work. You know, and people should look at it in that way and that is why it needs to be decriminalized because what a lot of them say is if it was decriminalized there would be a set of rules and regulations that were set up and the biggest problem particularly in Africa is that men who visit women for sex basically will not wear condoms and that is why we're still seeing the spread of AIDS and HIV in that part of the world. I've spoken to, to sex workers, male, female, you know, transsexuals who say that unless it's legalized, the epidemic that we see in parts of Africa will continue and will grow. And as you mentioned, you have some voices from delegates at this parallel AIDS conference. Uh, let's take a listen to those. I got involved in the sex industry when I was 22. I'm now 28, and hopefully I'll be involved in the sex industry for many years to come. I've done jobs that I've found soul-destroying, they, they, and they weren't sex work jobs. Sex work was a choice that I made to do, and I made it knowing that it would cause problems for me in the future as I grew up and as I got older and as people knew what my background was. But I didn't see that as being my problem. You know, Rahu, it seems obvious why it's vital to include sex workers in the effort to stem the global HIV epidemic. Um, but it seems it's not just in the U.S. where they still face stigma and exclusion, yeah? Absolutely. I think you talk to any sex worker who comes from any particular part of the world, and, of course, they all face stigma. You know, the gentleman that you heard from there at the end, uh, the conversation you didn't hear was when I asked him, does your father know what you do? And he said straight away no, and he could never, ever tell them. So that stigma 
exists. It's going to continue to exist. The sex trade is one of the oldest, if not the oldest profession. It has always been there. But I think what the sex workers are trying to say, and, and certainly the message that is coming out from Calcutta is, look, we don't need saving. We don't need your pity. We certainly don't want any saviors. We just want to be able to take our place in society. Much more difficult in reality than it sounds when we say those few simple words. But I think the feeling here is that they're beginning a new international movement that in a way not, getting, not being allowed into Washington has given them a stimulus that they're going to try and move on the issue of decriminalization. And as one of them said to me, listen, we don't care what people think. We earn more than most people. We earn more than you, one of them said to me. We just want to be able to buy health care, give our kids a decent education. Whether that's going to happen, you know, as you said, it's extremely difficult. But the one thing you can say for certain is the sex workers who are here in Calcutta, they're going to give it a try. Mm. You know, I, I think part of the problem is it's hard to believe um, that, that this is a choice. For, for the workers, you know? It is. And <clears throat> yeah, I, I fully understand that. And, I, I, you know, when I'm speaking to them myself, and I've spoken to 30, 40 of them this week, you sort of th sit there and think at the back of your mind, is it really a choice? You seem to get into it at a very, very young age. But as I suppose with anybody who's in a profession, you have to accept what they're saying. And, and the majority of them here say, we're happy selling sex. It puts money on the table for us. We can earn more money doing this than we can do in other walks of life and it's something that we want to do what's so wrong with it it's our body what we decide to do with that body is up to us um, and I suppose that what the question that you have just pointed out there is the most difficult one for sex workers to overcome because even when they they may well be doing something out of choice that feeling we have at the back of our mind is that, that it isn't that they're being forced into it because probably deep down you know most people still have this perception that it it's something wrong. But uh, it's, it's a fascinating debate. It's an interesting one. It's one that's going to continue, as you said. The reality is the stigma that's been there for, with sex workers for generations, for thousands and thousands of years, is not going to change overnight. But as they begin to mobilize themselves politically, I think their voice is at least in certain parts of the world being heard. The BBC's Rahul Tandon spoke to us from Kolkata, India. He's in the red light district there called Sonagachi. It's where global sex workers are holding a parallel AIDS-HIV conference. Rahul, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you. Coming up later in the show, 450 years ago, a small German city loaned Berlin some money. Berlin still hasn't repaid the debt, and the loan's been accruing interest ever since. Now officials from that small German city say it's high time Berlin pays up. That story in a few minutes. I'm Aaron Schachter. Coming up, the fighting in Syria takes its toll on the rebels. They were like little kittens. I mean, they were so shocked and so scared, and their eyes were so wide open. I haven't seen men behave in this way before. Behind the scenes with the Syrian Free Army, next on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. 
This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. I'm Aaron Schachter. There's been more fierce fighting in Syria. Several clashes were reported in the capital, Damascus. But the heaviest fighting has again been in Syria's second city, Aleppo. Reporting from a rebel front line is the BBC's Ian Pannell. The battle for Aleppo is raging, and it's one neither side can afford to lose. For the rebels, losing would be a disastrous setback that, at the very least, could neuter their revolution for months. For President Bashar al-Assad, losing Aleppo could be the tipping point that presages the downfall of his government. Despite their confidence and commitment, the rebels remain vastly outgunned and outmanned, and they're suffering daily losses and casualties. Blooded fighters with serious injuries were brought to a makeshift clinic where only the most basic treatments are available. We watched a constant stream of detainees being brought in. The rebels claim many are Shabiha, members of the feared government militia. Some had cuts on their bodies and bruised faces. Others had been beaten. Almost all looked terrified as they were taken away to meet a so-called judge who would decide their fate. The Free Syrian Army fighters have set up checkpoints and sniper positions to fend off government attacks. But this is far from a done deal for the rebels. Using shells and mortars, helicopters and jets, the government's response has been swift and brutal. The trouble is that it's civilians who are overwhelmingly paying the price. Mohammed is eight years old. He cries out for his father as shrapnel from a government shell is pulled from his body. His brother was killed and lies in the bed next to him. Neither side in this conflict is blameless. And as they battle for Aleppo and Syria, so it's the innocent who continue to suffer the most. The BBC's Ian Pannell reporting. While attention is focused on Syria's second city, fighting goes on elsewhere. 200 miles away to the east is the city of Deir el-Zor. Raith Abdul-Ahad of Britain's Guardian newspaper has just spent time with rebels there. He's now in Istanbul. He told us how Deir el-Zor, population 200,000, is affected by the fighting. People are dying. The civilians are there under siege. Uh, the government, because they, you know, they hold the big high hills overlooking the town so they, you know, they're pounding the town with mortars, with artillery sniper bullets, it's everything so it's really tough, it's really hard. Obviously you saw a lot of interesting, memorable frightening, sad things is there any particular moment that stands out for you? When I was leaving, I left with seven fighters, they're kind of tribal fighters, really hardcore from this region in the middle of the desert You know, they're really tough guys. They were like little kittens. I mean, they were so shocked and so scared, and their eyes were so wide open, and they kept asking, where are we going? Any forces there? Any government forces? I haven't seen, you know, men behave in this way before. And when I asked them what's wrong with them, each one of them have lost four or five people in the last month that they spent in the town. So that gave me a sort of sense of how hard the fighting is. Do you think after the experiences they've been through and and the way that you saw them that 
they'll be able to go back to regular life now? Well, I mean, looking to Lebanon, looking to Iraq, you know, 20, 30 years after the end of a civil war, you still see a traumatized population. I, I, I mean, many of the people I've talked to tell you that, you know, toppling the regime is just 5% of the actual revolution, you know, building a new Syria, how would those people disarm? Uh, one of the fighters, for example, was saying, you know, after all of this, you want me to leave my gun? I can't leave my gun. and This is part of me. In the end of the day, can they disarm? Can they go back to civilian life? I mean, I don't know. I think it's a very, very tough question. What does it look like on the ground? Are, are there people still in Deir al-Zor? There are about 200,000 people there, you report. Are, are most of them still there? Have most of them fled? Most of them have fled. It, it, it's so random, the shelling. I mean, they don't have any intelligence on the ground, the government forces. So they just kind of, you know, randomly shelled the whole city. You know, shells fall on mosques, on houses, on civilians. And, and I talked to a couple of doctors in the city, and they tell you most of the, the casualties are civilians because they sit in their houses, in their apartment blocks, in their courtyards, and uh, the shells fall on them while the rebel forces are always, you know, moving around, kind of taking shelter. It, sometimes it feels like playing a game of Russian roulette with five bullets in the chamber and one empty. And it does feel... Uh, you know, it's like this typical besieged city under shelling constantly. How do you decide where to go in the city? How do you assess the risks, considering that everything is so random? I mean, I mean, it, it becomes much easier because everything is so random, so it doesn't matter where you are. Uh, I, I did try to get sense of, you know, the fighting that's taking place. Uh, you know, I've, I've reported on Syria previously, but I, I wanted to see this the level of fighting. Are they actually fighting uh, firsthand? I mean, what kind of fighting? How? What kind of ammunition they have? And that's why I kind of basically entered Deir Zofor. As I was walking with the fighters in the city, you kind of, you see all those civilians emerging from, from their apartments, from their basements, and they, you know, they have these stunned faces, these, um, you know, they're shocked. At night, some of the soldiers try to smuggle the civilians out of the city. But then the government forces have blocked even the main road. Even civilians can't leave the city at this moment. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very complicated situation. Uh, are people supporting the rebels or are they angry, do you think, that the rebels are bringing such destruction upon them? I think kind of people are beyond this point at this moment. Uh, They're just I mean, surviving. I don't think they're just surviving, and they, they can't afford to blame the rebels. This is, in the end of the day, who are the rebels? This is a local unit from the neighborhood, from the, the houses. Uh, you know, I, I spent one of the days I spent with one of these units that was trying to stop the column of tanks. And at the end of the day, I went with the two fighters. We went back to their home. The mother is there cooking like a big plate of okra and bread. The father is there. Uh, w- the wife of one of the sons are there. So, of course, they are, they are living under the shelling. But in the end of the day, the FSA fighters are their sons. So, And then... The ultimate thing, I mean, I didn't talk to one single fighter who wasn't tortured in jail. I mean, this is the ultimate thing. People say they're Salafis, they're jihadis, you know, the Saudis are funding them, Americans or Turks. But they are fighting because every single one of them was detained at one point and was tortured so horribly. So there is so much hatred and anger towards the regime that justifies all this fighting. Is there a Deir al-Zor left? 
There is a Derizor left, of course. I mean, you know, Derizor is being bombed every day. I don't know if there will be a Derizor left within, you know, within the next month or two. But at this moment, it's it's one of these ghost towns, uh, Aaron. It's, you know, I, I travel in Derizor and I can, you know, I can close my eyes and think of, I don't know, Fallujah, Beirut, all these other cities that are being kind of shelled and bombed. The main fabric of the city has been kind of, it's been shattered. All the houses, left open by the civilians now taken over by the soldiers, the militiamen digging holes through the walls and fighting from one house to the other so technically speaking the city itself is a battleground at this moment Raith Abdurahad is with Britain's Guardian newspaper. You can see pictures from the time he spent with Syrian rebels go to theworld.org More than 300 years ago King Louis XIV had a very big band The Baroque ensemble that played for the French king and his court was unique. It included five different types of violins. Today, only two remain. The other three violins vanished without a trace, or nearly without a trace. Some musicians and violin makers believe they've pieced together the lost instruments, and with them, the royal orchestra. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Montpellier, France. Say what you will about the Sun King, but the guy could dance. At least that's what historians tell us. This is what Louis XIV danced to. The Baroque music you're hearing hasn't been played in this configuration for more than 250 years. 24 violins, 5 varieties. In its day, this was the orchestra to play in, the so-called grand band that played for France's royal court at Versailles. This is from a concert that took place this past Tuesday night in Montpellier's Opera House. Before the performance, the orchestra leader and master violinist Patrick Cohen-Aknin describes the sound as incredible. There's a chemistry among the strings, a strength, he says. That's what the 24 violins were, a musical institution with power. The director of the 24 violins even had the title King of the Violin. That's a strong moniker to give someone at Versailles. So the orchestra was going strong, the Baroque movement had enough gas in its tank for another half century, but then, almost overnight, the ensemble disappeared, and with it, three of its five violins. What happened? In a word, Stradivarius. The master from Cremona, Italy, came up with perfection, a virtuoso violin, a soloist's dream. Suddenly, everyone wanted to play that, says Antoine Loller, a luthier in Paris. In his violin workshop, he tells me that meant discarding the older, less glamorous instruments in the 24 violins orchestra. He bows a 17th century bass violin to illustrate the difference in timbre. You have to know, he says, these violins belonged in the interior of the orchestra. That was the French Baroque sound. It's not a soloist sound. These instruments simply became obsolete, he laughs, like PlayStation 1. <laughs> obsolete and an obsession for Loller and Cohen Aknin, who first approached the master builder several years ago with what seemed like an impossible challenge. He came and asked us to recreate a lost sound, a sound that existed only in his head. He explained it to me. He made me dream of the missing violins to understand that each instrument was a key in the larger sound, a piece in a larger puzzle. 
On the low end of King Louis' puzzle, you had that gravelly bass you just heard. On the high end, a stringent, nasally, nearly mosquito-like whine. What's so remarkable about the recreation of these instruments is that Loller and Cohen Aknin had almost nothing to work with. Of course, there were no recordings or photos from the late 1600s. They didn't even have drawings. All they had was sheet music from the time, oblique references to instruments in texts, and sometimes they'd find a piece of an original violin. Just instrument grand avait été coupé. Some of the bigger violins were literally cut up, Cohen says, and recycled. The body, for example, might have been really wonderful, so the neck was cut off, and a luthier would attach a new, smaller neck to fit the times. From these remnants, he says, we could more or less reverse engineer and figure out the original sizes. The largest of the three missing violins, the cant, is the size of a small guitar, but it's held and bowed like a violin. You need a shoulder strap to maintain it. Cohen, Aknin, and Loller say they'll never know if they got the instruments exactly right, and that's caused some controversy in the world of Baroque music. But Loller says reconstructing a sound exactly is impossible under any circumstances. He says because the sound one person hears is filtered through the ears, processed in the brain, so in the end it's not the same sound that I hear. Everyone digests sound in a very personal way. Sound is like perfume on people, he says. It smells very different depending on who's wearing it. As for Patrick Cohen-Aknin, he says he considers himself as much a pioneer as a player. He says you've got to keep researching, prospecting, as it were. Otherwise, Baroque music risks becoming standardized. Dance music for dead kings. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Montpellier, France. What do the vanished violins from the grand band look like? Well, for one thing, they're really big. We have a video at theworld.org. Time now for today's GeoQuiz. Yes, we know it's not our normal GeoQuiz music, but it is a clue. This song was written by Paul Gerhardt, one of Germany's most prolific composers of hymns. Back in the 17th century, Gerhardt lived, for a short while, in a city that's the answer to our GeoQuiz. Frankly, he's the only famous, semi-famous resident the city's ever had. A few more clues... In the Middle Ages, this city was a major farming and trading center. It was so wealthy that in the year 1562, Berlin, which is about 20 miles to the northwest, came begging for a loan. The good burghers of our city agreed to lend Berlin the cash. But it's a debt, as you'll hear in a bit, that's yet to be repaid. Stay tuned for the answer. This is PRI Public Radio International.
The World is brought to you by PRI with help from WGBH, producer of Market Warriors, from the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow. Four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to out-profit their competitors at auction. Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. This is The World. I'm Aaron Schachter. European political and financial leaders spent the day trying to ease global fears about the European economy and ultimately the fate of the euro itself. In London, Mario Draghi, head of the European Central Bank, or ECB, vowed to save the beleaguered currency. The ECB is ready to do whatever it takes to preserve the euro. And believe me, it will be enough. The markets responded positively to that comment, but few think the eurozone crisis is even close to being over or that the ECB can solve all of Europe's problems. In fact, most Europeans are looking instead to Germany for leadership and for cash. And so this tale of unpaid debt might come as a bit of a surprise. The story starts 450 years ago in the small German town of Mittenwalde, which, by the way, is the answer to our geo-quiz. The world's Clark Boyd has more. Sleepy Village might be the best way to describe Mittenwalde today. It's got about 9,000 inhabitants, some medieval ruins, and the fact that hymn writer Paul Gerhardt once lived there, briefly. No, seriously, he was huge back in the 17th century. But Mittenwalde's history is, well, rich, literally. Uwe Pfeiffer has served as the town's mayor since 1990. The city was founded in the 11th century, Pfeiffer tells me. It had lots of agriculture, and our farmers were comparatively wealthy. At the same time, Pfeiffer adds, Mittenwalde was a trade center, and that gave us additional income. In fact, by 1562, Mittenwalde was so wealthy that nearby Berlin came begging for a loan. And Sonja Sobeck, who works for Mittenwalde's mayor, says her city didn't hesitate. Berlin had in our city many debts, exactly 400 guilders with 6% interest. Okay, in today's terms, Mittenwalde's loan to Berlin was worth more than $120 million. It was issued a, a promissory note for that amount with no stamp on it. That's a problem. Berlin pays no debts without a stamp on the debt certificate. And so for all these years, Berlin has refused to pay up. Town historians in Mittenwalde have repeatedly said the promissory note, which has from time to time hung framed in the mayor's office, is authentic. Occasionally, a delegation from Mittenwalde will go to Berlin to plead the town's case. And for good reason. 450 years of interest adds up. Mittenwalde now reckons that Berlin's debt is in the trillions. Recently, Mayor Pfeiffer and others from Mittenwalde met with Berlin officials. You'll be shocked to hear that they didn't drive home with trillions of dollars. After all, Berlin's own city budget is more than $50 million in the red. But the Mittenwalde delegation did not come home empty-handed, says Sonja Sobeck. The result of the meeting was that our city gets one guilder from the State Museum of Berlin. This one is from uh, 5039, the time of Joachim II of Brandenburg. So... One gold coin from the time the loan was made. That's what Mittenwalde got for all of its trouble. Still, officials put that gilder in the city museum. No doubt, the words of Berlin's finance minister still ring in the town's ears. He said, this case shows that debts always catch up with you, no matter how old they are. Come to think of it, I'm pretty sure some other officials in Berlin have been saying that to the Greeks for a couple of years now. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. 
From a gold coin out of Berlin to some golden music out of Paris, a band from the French capital caught the ear recently of music critic and contributor Tom Schnabel. I'm delighted with a brand new album, a second album by Caravan Palace. It's a gypsy jazz group from France, and it is one of the most fun sounds, a great summer album. The new album is called Panic, and like the first album, it's a mixture of gypsy jazz, uh, manouche, swing, classic motifs, just mixed with a perfect balance of electronics and, uh, and live instruments. The hit song, the single that they've chosen, uh, we want to play first. It's called The Dirty Side of the Street. It's new music from the French group Caravan Palace, The Dirty Side of the Street. It's a single from the new album called Panic. Another piece on the album that I like is called simply Rocket for Me. And it's kind of a a rock and roll song, um, but done in a very, very French way. This is just typical of the fun that's on the album that really pervades everything. They're great musicians, but they also know how to use electronics just perfectly. That was called Rocket For Me. It's by Caravan Palace. They have a new album out called Panic. The lyrics really aren't so important. They're kind of dada and silly and everything else. And most of the songs here are just like one word. There's Pirates, Beatophone, Sydney, Cottonheads, Dramaphone, Glory of Nelly, New Bop, um, all sorts of kind of crazy titles. Final track that uh, I want to play is just called simply Clash. The thing that I love about this album is just basically the energy and the way it sounds. And it's a great summer album. It's a new album from France's Caravan Palace called Panic. I'm Tom Schnabel for The World. Music from the band Caravan Palace is chosen by Tom Schnabel of station KCRW in Santa Monica. And you can watch a robot dance in Paris while UFOs fly overhead. 
It's a video for the song Rocket For Me. Trust me, it's great. And it's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter. Dance on over to us again tomorrow. is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art, the Freeman Foundation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Rita Allen Foundation, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.